is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The first of what could possibly be several legal dominoes have now fallen right on top of former President Trump. New York's Attorney General filing a civil lawsuit against Mr. Trump, three of his kids, and two longtime company executives. Claiming you have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. And there cannot be different rules for different people in this country or in this state. The lawsuit alleges business fraud. We'll go in depth into what this means for other cases against Mr. Trump that are moving forward. Russia calling up more troops to fight in Ukraine. And more than one million people are still without power in Puerto Rico following Hurricane Fiona. The L.A. mayor's race kicking into high gear. First debates between Rick Caruso and Karen Bass's tonight. Ours to follow in just a couple weeks. The Federal Reserve raising interest rates again. We go in depth into whether it can slow down inflation. And we end the show with filmmaker Ken Burns talking about his new documentary series, The U.S. and the Holocaust, and what it means in today's political climate. But we start with the civil lawsuit against former President Trump. Sam Braverman is a legal analyst and New York-based criminal defense attorney specializing in white-collar crime. Sam, thanks for being with us. So if I understand the charges, uh, they essentially are that what? That, that Mr. Trump in his business enterprise and his three kids would either inflate the value of his holdings in order to get a bit more favorable bank loans, but then devalue the, the, the value of his holdings when reporting his taxes. Is that essentially it? That's a very good way to look at it. Thank you for having me. If you always look at fraud as a lie to get or keep money, and you kind of look at that basic idea of it, that generally is the thread that goes throughout the 220 pages. And so it is very much the first part, and that is the overriding beginning of uh, Attorney General James's position, is that there's this systemic, knowing, under oath inflation of the dollar amounts they're held by billions of dollars. And that allows them to get a host of funds through a variety of different frauds, including insurance fraud and other loans from banks, and, all of which, of course, would be federal crimes as well. And, when and it's, then the flip side is, is just as you say, then they're trying to devalue things and use accounting methods to then falsely take excessive deductions to revalue things and allow them then to take losses for accounting purposes, also in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, and when it's this amount, I mean, it's not just a couple things, you know, because people go, oh, New York business people always trying to do something. But this is Trump Tower, it's other buildings, it's uh, the value of his name attached to things, it's Mar-a-Lago and the status of it. I mean, she went point by point, and it seems like it's everywhere. Yeah, they interviewed uh, by her, by the first paragraph of the of the document, they interviewed more than three score witnesses, went through millions of documents, they tag every institution that he puts his fingerprints on. It's billions of dollars, and it's more than 10 years. So the premise is, you know, where I guess is pigs get slaughtered, right, is that you can just have so much theft that at some point somebody says, you know, I think we'll care about this. And that point was reached. Now, of course, she's also, the New York State Attorney General, referred this to federal prosecutors in New York for possible criminal, uh, a possible criminal case against Mr. Trump. What would be, on the civil side, 
if convicted, what would be the worst outcome for him, his family, and his business? Uh, and then we can maybe quickly touch on what would the worst outcome be if there's a criminal prosecution? Sure. Well, so the worst outcome civilly would be two main things. One is disgorgement. And so if they got illegal funds illegally, they can be ordered by a court to disgorge those into a fund or just to forfeit them. And restitution for anybody who suffered a loss because of the fraud. If you multiply that by the number of frauds, you know, you could be writing checks for billions of dollars. The flip, the other side of the civil penalty is it would confirm to the world that he's worth less than he always said. And that would be an embarrassment for him if ultimately he gets deposed. You remember when you saw back 25 years ago when Bill Clinton was deposed, it was an embarrassment, right? And he had to answer and lie and other kinds of disasters. That would be a trauma for Trump to do that. And I think it would be a terrible thing for him. And for the feds or, or the IRS, and has she done a lot of work for them, handing things over? I mean, some of this you can't oh, really yeah. wiggle out of, right? If, if Trump penthouse is 11,000 square feet, but you say it's 33,000, like, it's 11 at the end of the day, because that's how big it is. And that's just how it is. You walk in there and you can measure it. And that's why a deposition, you know, in a deposition, his best answer is going to be, I have people who take care of these things. The Leone Helmsley, only small people pay taxes. I think he could try and figure it out that way. That's his standard go-to playbook. But I'm not so sure that there's any wiggle room here. And that was the point of making this an overwhelming, what was the expression, um, Colin Powell doctrine, right? You bring everything in the beginning so you don't have to work on the details. You just have it all there in front of you. And she also laid, uh, 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 yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, you're, I think, about to get to that criminally. Yeah, criminally, is a, it, it's a much more significant thing. Two important things. One is she extends this conspiracy between the organizations to 20 21. Much of the original thought was that his criminal conduct occurred before he became president, which would mean that the five-year statute of limitations on most conspiracies has run. So it would be conduct before 2017, um, and that he was already in presidency. The problem is, if you're in a conspiracy, the statute of limitations runs until the end of the conspiracy, or you withdraw. He didn't withdraw the conspiracy, according to her, runs through 2021 and be well within the statute of limitations. And then his penalties there are immense. You know, bank fraud is a 30-year penalty up to. Uh, wire fraud is a 20-year penalty up to. This is per count. So what, uh, one quick question before we run out of time. So by extending it to 2021, and I wanted to be clear to listeners, she, in effect, is accusing him of engaging in all this fraud while he was president of the United States. And after. And after. Okay. Sam Braverman, legal analyst, New York-based criminal defense attorney, specializes in white-collar crime. Right now, though, uh, Vladimir Putin's call to order a partial mobilization to reinforce Russian troops in Ukraine is the latest escalation in the war. Putin also made a veiled threat today about possibly using nuclear weapons. President Biden strongly criticized Russia during his address to the U.N. General Assembly this morning. With us now is Danny Bello, professor of international relations at Webster University in St. Louis. He's an expert on NATO-Russia relations. Thank you for being with us. 
So let's take uh, what Mr. Putin did first, and then we'll get to Mr. Biden in New York. Uh, so Putin orders the first mobilization, I believe, since World War II. Uh, and I think the number that's being tossed around is, is a couple hundred, maybe 300,000, something like that. Um, what does that signify? Well, um, the th- 300,000 uh, uh, service uh, soldiers uh, are part of the reservists category. So it's not a general mobilization. It's a limited mobilization. But we really don't know uh, if the mobilization will be much wider. Uh, why did this happen? Well, we're clearly seeing uh, U- Ukrainian forces uh, supported by the United States and Europe uh, being effective on the battlefield around uh, Kharkiv. And that signaled to Russia that uh, its other positions, um, meaning occupied territories inside of Ukraine, are in danger. So in order to shift the balance of power in favor of Russia, Putin ordered this mobilization. Uh, what the consequence or what the effectiveness of that mobilization will be in practical terms on the battlefield, that remains to be seen. But we know that there are, that the Russian army is currently uh, not doing very well. And that's possible uh, that that will not change with this mobilization even. Was this almost an expected move? I mean, the, the administration officials were saying, you know, we didn't change the president's speech very much. Only a few lines here and there because we probably thought Putin was going to do some of this anyways. And, and he already called out, you know, prisoners saying you can get out if you go fight. And he already sent in the cadets. So now this is like the next step. That's right. Uh, so what we're seeing now is that the uh, resources on the battlefield are being depleted. And uh, it's terrible, but indeed Russia uh, sent uh, prisoners and other um, Russians who are not qualified to fight. So that's why we're seeing, at least substantially, we're seeing so many uh, potential atrocities committed on the battlefield because Russia is acting out of desperation, sending people to the front lines. And now we're seeing this escalation in terms of at least 300,000 extra fighters. And then there is the vote, right? Uh, They're going to have voting over a few days in the portions that the Russians are now controlling or partially control in the eastern. And I think it's part of the southern portion of of Ukraine with the notion that uh, that vote will lead to those places being declared parts of Russia. And if that were to happen, and many people think that it will end up happening that way, does that then give Putin the leeway to, if he wants to, claim that any attack on those regions are now an attack not on Ukraine, but on actually an attack on Russia, and thus escalate the war that way? That's right. So this is actually, so this these uh, referenda that will take place, of course, in Russian-occupied territories, uh, but that in itself is not just the end of that escalation. What we're seeing emerging out of the Kremlin, what Putin discussed directly in his speech is uh, that now it's not just about this so-called special operation, but what's happening on the front line is actually an existential threat to Russia's what he calls territorial integrity. In other words, he gave himself and his uh, cabinet a carte blanche to use any means necessary to now defend the existence of Russia. So this is, a, at least in terms of rhetoric, a significant escalation. President of the U.N. gives his speech, says, even if you're not on the border, you're being affected by this. We have a food crisis. He's pinned that on this and you can't get the exports out. Does that move any needle that's not already being moved by what the West is doing to try to help Ukraine? Well, uh, what we're going to likely see in terms of uh, food security and other uh, things that come out of this crisis there, if there is an escalation to the conflict, it's likely to be exacerbated in terms of 
uh, energy prices and other uh, natural resources because conflict directly if negatively affects um, basically supply lines and it increases energy prices. So if escalation indeed takes place and this goes beyond rhetoric, then we are likely to see uh, more stress in the global economy. Danny Bello, Professor of International Relations, Webster University in St. Louis. Coming up, we'll take a look into how the new interest rate hike is going to impact the economy. And we will talk to filmmaker Ken Burns about his latest work, The U.S. and the Holocaust, and its lessons for today's political climate. Right now, more than a million people in Puerto Rico still without electricity. Many others still don't have clean drinking water days after the hurricane hit the island. Same issues after Hurricane Maria in 2017. Ruth Santiago, environmental lawyer, member of the Board of Trustees for Earth Justice uh, in Puerto Rico. Ruth, thanks for being with us. So we have heard all sorts of estimates about when some of this is going to come back online, the power of the water uh, that's been changing. What do you know uh, being there? Yeah, uh, we don't know. Um, the company that's the private company that's running the transmission and distribution system had initially seemed to say that it would be in a couple of days. That certainly hasn't happened, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. It's hard to understand. Um, the the Hurricane Fiona was Category One. It wasn't um, a really big. Uh, terrible hurricane like uh, Maria. I mean, it was it was horrible in terms especially of the rain. Um, but we don't have as many poles and wires and um, towers related to transmission and distribution down. Um, and I'm in southern Puerto Rico, which was mostly impacted more than the northern PR. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know why it's taking this long even. I'm amazed at how, in many ways anyway, how well the people there are holding up. I, I've I've seen so many interviews in the past day or so with people who, and you know, and your heart goes out to them. They they went through so much five years ago. Uh, maybe we're barely getting back to something that resembles normal. And now along this comes, and they're kind of right back where they started from. But they they seem to you know have a, a will to. I guess what else can they do? Keep going on. But is that your sense, too? Or are they in in some ways maybe more resilient than they themselves thought they might be? Well, I don't know. Um, lots of people have left. Um, lots of people may be leaving now, uh, for all we know. Um, there's been a mass exodus from Puerto Rico and the electric system, especially in the past year or so, that Luma Energy has been operating has been even worse than it was before. Um, and I, I think people are getting to a point where they really can't um, deal much more with, with these extended and frequent outages, uh, power outages. Um, and you, I don't know if you can hear in the background on my street here, um, there's a generator going, and that's pretty much the case on every street in Puerto Rico, at least one. Um, and people have been intoxicated with the fumes, with the carbon monoxide from those generators, and they're getting on long lines for fuel for those generators. Um, I, I and other, a few other fortunate people have rooftop solar systems, and we're able to uh, function uh, throughout. Um, 
so but not, not not many people can afford that there's a very high poverty rate here and um so most people by far uh, you know millions of there are 3 million people here and i don't think even 50,000 can afford the you know have have the actual rooftop solar installed people here on the the mainland are, are playing the blame game you know pointing fingers uh, since maria it's this agency's fault or it's it's that utility's fault is there some sort of consensus there, or is it like, look, I'm just trying to get by the next few days with this generator. I can't control what the power line people are doing, but clearly something's wrong. Absolutely. Um, we've seen, especially over the past year and, and a few months, um, that this company that took over does not have the workforce. They don't have the next necessary workforce. They um, didn't. Uh, uh, facilitate, you know, the, the workforce coming, the, the the experienced and knowledgeable people who had handled the grid for for so long um, to come into to work with them, and so now um, they basically do not know how to handle the the electric system, and so we we had a huge power outage on April sixth. We've had many many um, extended power outages um, since then, and it's. Uh, it's very clear that uh, Luma Energy is not meeting up to um, the standard by any means, um, and they're very uh, secretive about their procedures and um, how they are going about supposedly rebuilding the centralized transmission distribution system, handing out contracts to their affiliates and former uh former executives of, of uh, Quanta Services and Atco Canadian Utilities, which are the parent companies of this joint venture called Luma Energy. Um, so it's, it's uh, and there's a really generalized consensus that uh, this Luma situation is not working, other than, of course, the, the governor, high-level uh, high government officials, but even the, the what we call the resident commissioner has spoken out against the con- contract. That's Ruth Santiago there, environmental lawyer, member of the Board of Trustees for Earth Justice. Ruth, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felton. The November election will be here before we know it, which is why the two L.A. mayor candidates are getting ready tonight, getting together for their first debate. A recent poll showing Karen Bass ahead of Rick Caruso, but a debate might be able to swing things in his favor depending on how it goes. With us is Sarah Sedwani, professor of politics at Pomona College. She'll be at tonight's debate. Thank you for being with us. So this debate is aimed at whom? Yeah, this debate is aimed at Angelinos who are going to cast that their ballots very soon. Of course, uh, take-home ballots, are, mail-in ballots are going to be sent out in just a couple of weeks. Um, so tonight is for anyone who's out there who has is undecided yet. Um, of course, we know that both of these candidates have um, their, you know, some core supporters behind them. Um, but plenty of Angelinos um, are not yet tuned into the debate. Of course, it's a midterm election, so we typically anticipate participation in these midterm elections to be a little bit lower. So really trying to get out, uh, get out the vote uh, with this debate. What are you looking for in terms of their interactions? And then this is the first chance to like have them at length rather than, you know, before it was like most people were taking quick shots at Caruso because they could get them in fast, right? 
Absolutely. You know, in the past, during the primary stage, that debate stage was full of candidates. Um, and Karen Bass at that point was already the clear front runner in the polls. Um, so everyone was was itching to try and get into that number two slot. And and as you said, as you noted, right, taking those those cheap shots at Caruso. Tonight's going to be a very different format. Just these two candidates um, sparring. You know, I'm I, I think a, a key piece here is Caruso, as you mentioned, is trailing Bass by about 12%. So he's going to be on the attack. He's going to be looking um, for opportunities to, you know, uh, uh, bring Karen Bass down and, and shine a light on, on himself and, and uh, what he has to offer as mayor. And Bass, you know, as the clear front runner um, with a decisive margin coming out of the primary, her job's really going to be to stay cool, to stay calm and collected, take the high ground and show Angelinos the kind of leadership that they can expect from her um, and to really advance her policy agenda. And but, you know, for change. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, in, in some cities, big cities like New York and, and Chicago, Boston, mayors have an enormous amount of power and there's a lot they can do to affect some real significant change in those cities. By by design, L.A.'s mayor, as you know, is designed to be a much weaker uh, office. It, it's a city basically run by the city council. So what do both candidates, uh, Rick Caruso and Karen Bass, when you cut through all the stuff they cannot do, cannot do, what do they have to sell people on that they can do? Yeah, you know, Los Angeles is facing a host of issues, right? And we see that in uh, across the board in other local elections. Certainly those city council elections are also very hot. You know, we've seen uh, already one city council member, Gil Cedillo, not being, being elected back to office. So people are definitely looking for change. And we hear uh, the key issues being crime, people experiencing homelessness, and what a mayor can actually bring to the table, what kind of leadership they can offer to actually make a dent in some of these key challenges that we're facing. When, and, and not if, but when Caruso raises the Karen Bass scholarship at USC and then tries to link it to the Mark Ridley Thomas case, how do you do that to not get too bogged down in, in, in this huge back and forth? Do you just almost have to raise like the specter of it and make it seem quasi-suspicious to get enough people to go, oh, I, I don't like that? I think absolutely. And certainly you've been seeing that messaging from Caruso, even on Twitter and social media, um, just just raising that, raising the, the suspicion. Um, and I'll be really curious to find out if Caruso has additional information to that he's going to bring to bear tonight as well. Of course, you know, Caruso served as the, the chair of the board at USC throughout that time period. I'm curious if he's sitting on any additional information that perhaps we, the public, don't already know. Um, so certainly that's something I'll keep an eye out for this evening. What do you think is more important to especially those undecided voters that you talked about before? The uh, answers at the debate that the candidates are going to give or the commercials that uh, Caruso now and I'm sure Bass will quickly follow are going to be flooding and are flooding the airways with? Yeah. You know, a big part of campaigns is getting the message out, controlling the narrative and and reaching as many voters as possible. And as you mentioned, 
Caruso has a an enormous personal war chest that he is deploying um, to get his ads out. Certainly, we saw it in the primary stage, and we're seeing it now again. I just saw an ad yesterday morning. He's doubling down on his new identity as a Democrat. All of his commercials are saying, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Democrat for mayor. So certainly, um, I think that's going to have a big impact. You know, and one of the other key pieces that we've seen, there was an, a column today in the Los Angeles Times, is also the the immense amount of outreach that Caruso has been doing to the Latino and Asian American communities. These are communities that I study every day as a part of my day job um, for decades. Uh, they have reported that candidates and political parties don't do enough uh, to do outreach to them. People are not always coming and knocking on their doors, sending them mailers, making phone calls. Caruso is flipping the, the narrative on that and doubling down on his outreach to Latino and, and Asian American communities. And I'll be curious to see the kinds of messaging that Karen Bass might bring to uh, the debate tonight and the kinds of campaign tactics she might begin to engage in in the coming weeks. Sarah Sedwani, professor of politics, Pomona College. A reminder, we'll have our debate with Caruso and Bass right here live on KNX October 6th at 5 p.m. You got questions, send them to us, debate at knxnews.com. Well, they did it again. The Federal Federal Reserve it raised a key interest rate, this time three-quarters of a percentage point. That's the third straight time. The goal is and has been to try and control inflation. It's also, of course, led to higher mortgage rates, rates for cars, personal loans. What happens now to the economy? Can the Fed steer it out of a recession? Alexander Tomich, Associate Dean and Economist at Boston College. Uh, thanks for being here. So, yeah, here we go again. And the chairman saying it again today, right? This is going to hurt but we need to keep at it. And he told you that a month ago, right, uh, at the Jackson Hall, he was pretty uh, clear about Fed will keep at it. And, you know, Fed sees inflation as a much bigger issue than a potential economic downturn. So my guess is we will see yet another one next time they meet. So this is, you know, pretty expected. Uh, and this is the way to actually fight inflation. How high could it realistically go? Uh, the interest rates? Yeah. Uh, some projections that we are seeing are thinking maybe four, four and a half percent within the next year or two. But I think that's very difficult to say. Uh, if the economy keeps performing well, which it still is, um, you know, they will be much uh, bolder in raising the interest rates. Uh, as best as I can see, the expectations are about probably three and a half or so by the end of the year, probably as much as four and a half uh, by the end of next year. What is your confidence level that they actually pull this off and get us to a, I don't know, we can land softly anymore, but like soft ish or are we going to come crashing down and then accidentally they're going to end up triggering a recession because that's always the fear on the other side so that that is a good one and i you know i have heard comments that they have never managed the soft landing but i think you know it's important to keep in mind you know that uh, economy will have to slow down if we are going to control the inflation and i understand the, the question is how far uh, we would go down uh, my best guess is probably not that far. I don't know that there will be a tremendous crash like it was in 2008, 2009, simply because the fundamentals are a little bit different this time. They're actually a lot different, especially in the real estate markets. But, uh, you know, but there will be definitely downturn. And I would say it will probably not be horrible. 
Uh, and also it's worth keeping in mind it's always relative to what, right? So, you know, 90 degrees, is it hot or is it not so hot in Boston? We think it's quite warm. In LA, I'm sure you don't. You know, so we are we are right now in, in a well-performing economy and that's, that's the reason why Fed is not even thinking about, uh, you know, even mincing words. They are saying we will raise the rates. Uh, labor markets are very tight. You know, yes, GDP is suffering a little bit, but, you know, labor market tight. Um, it's not that they are right on track, I would say. Could it, you know, could it lead to some kind of crash? Sure. Uh, it will be interesting to see also what happens on the fiscal side. You know, uh, you mentioned because, you mentioned before that, uh, you know, you heard the all this, uh, these stories about how the Fed never manages mm-hmm. to have a soft uh, landing. And we've heard that, of course, too, from many different experts that yeah. they, they tend to not get it right. Yeah. So that leads to the question that these are supposed to be the experts, right, on financial, Fed, uh, on monetary policy. If it's true that they never or almost never get it right. Does that say what? That 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 it's more of an art than a science? Or, no one or what? knows what's going on. Yeah. So, so, so it says that you cannot control these things. Uh, and even if you are in North Korea, you still cannot control uh, people that much. You know, we interact with each other. In the United States, we interact in relatively free markets. Uh, and it's really, yes, there is more of art to it than the science. Because keep in mind, Fed does not set the rates. Fed tries to influence the rates. So what, you know, so what they will do, and, and just, you know, if I could take just a minute, uh, what, what they essentially do, they pull money out of the system when they want to raise the rates, and they put it back in the system when they want to lower them. And they accomplish this by buying and selling securities, mostly treasury securities, but nowadays they are also... Uh, dealing with the mortgage-backed securities that they accumulated over the, you know, since 2008, essentially. So, you know, there is no exact science. So they will start selling and then watch what's happening in the market because the federal funds rate is not set by Fed. It's actually determined between the banks, what they charge each other. So what they are trying to do, they are trying to influence it because they cannot control it. And it's exactly, it's not an exact science. And there is always something else that could happen. And that's another thing to keep in mind. You know, if everything continues the way it is now, sure, they would have an easier job. But, you know, who could have guessed in December of last year that Russia would invade Ukraine in March? Not very many people, right? So, you know, there are all these other pressures coming in. You know, Europe is definitely going into a recession. China, nobody really knows what's going on there and how long they will keep up with their COVID restrictions. So it's always possible that two months from now, something happens that we can't foresee, right? Uh, And then Fed has to pivot. But they do not have control. They just influence. And that's why it's so inexact. Alexander Tomic, Associate Dean, Economist, Boston College. You know what I kind of heard there? No one knows what's going on. You know, I, I wonder sometimes, suppose you and I set the rates. Yeah. Would we have any better luck? You know what I'd do? Yeah. Kind of like a dartboard thing. Just, just, start... just whatever I land on. There you go, folks. Do you want to know something? Huh. I bet you that's what they do, too. <laughs> it's in his office. <laughs> yeah. They all line up. Let's see. <laughs> all right. More to come here on In-Depth. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. When you think of history and documentaries, you may envision watching something from filmmaker Ken Burns. The Civil War, baseball, jazz, the Vietnam War, 
It goes on and on. Arguably the most celebrated documentary filmmaker, Ken Burns out with a new PBS series called The U.S. and the Holocaust. It explores America's actions and inaction regarding the atrocity. With us is Ken Burns and his producer and co-director, Sarah Botsteins, worked with Ken on several documentaries. Thank you to you both for, for being here. Ken, let's start with you. I've been reading some of the things that have been written about this, and they say, oh, you know, he did baseball and Muhammad Ali and jazz, and now he's making this departure. Is it a departure, or is a general theme for all of this that there is a lot that we don't know, and, and you're going to tell us about it? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, a good story is exactly that, right? We're interested in saying yes only to good stories. And, and you know, so I would suggest you look at Civil War and Vietnam War and World War II, defying the Nazis, you know, the Roosevelts, there's lots of stuff. And within the ones that you mentioned, there are the darker aspects and recesses of of of, of stories. I don't, I don't think we've done a story that's sort of like all sunshine and sort of sanitized Madison Avenue. That's not the way we work. And so, yeah, this is... This is a good story. Unfortunately, it also happens to be a heartbreaking story, but one that given the current situation, we have to be you know, really aware of and, and know. And for too long, Americans have sort of felt that they had a almost plausible deniability about the Holocaust. So we found out about it when they liberated the concentra- concentration camps. Boy, that was terrible. But we knew in 1933 that the handwriting was on the wall. We knew more or less what was going on. And at a time when rescue was still possible, uh, we only allowed in a fraction of the people that we could have brought in and a fraction of the people that even our own limited pernicious immigration law would have permitted in. So, you know, this is a, this is a story, a really complicated story filled with wonderful points of lights and heroic human beings that we have to reckon with. We cannot pretend that we're disconnected. The United States had nothing to do with the Holocaust at all. We're not complicit in the Holocaust, though the ideas that helped animate the evil of it were exchanged by anti-Semitism around the world, including the United States. Hitler admired the way we swept aside Native peoples, dispossessed them of their land, murdered them, and put the rest into reservations, right? I mean, so there is a set of ideas that belie the American ones. We are a nation of immigrants. We are a good people, as the historian Nell Painter says, but we've also got a more complicated story that also needs to be told. I kind of want to, with either one of you, uh, explore some of that complexity because uh, you're right, of course, the U.S., we weren't the ones that committed the Holocaust. We didn't kill people. But there is a culpability, and, and maybe you would or wouldn't agree with my choice of word, culpability. But it does, in, in watching the, the program, what I've seen so far, uh, and in reading about it as well, you are painting a, a, a picture of a country, our country, that because of, as you pointed out, some of our ingrained attitudes, some of our indifference, some of our political unwillingness, to try to rescue people in dire need of help. We certainly were more than just bystanders. I I prefer actually to focus on um, how Americans responded to the news as they were receiving it, when they were receiving it, trying to unpack some of the myths that we tell ourselves about this time period, good and bad, if you want to couch it that way. So I think we have to confront the fact that in addition to a kind of racist and nativist history that we have, we also have a deeply anti-Semitic one. 
And we were also a country coming out of its own domestic crisis of the Great Depression. We were, uh, you know, dealing with the 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 um, kind of waves of isolationist sentiment after World War One. We were watching Hitler come to power and the rise of Nazism and trying to understand how to respond to a humanitarian crisis and a the beginnings of a global world war and conflict when we had a very small military force. So I, I think separating the Holocaust and the war, I think we're, we often take World War II and we split it into chunks, right? We think about the Pacific War as separate from the European War. We think about the European War, its military struggle different from the humanitarian one. And I think what we tried to do in the World War II film that Ken was referencing was think about that time period from the American military point of view pretty holistically. And here we're trying to understand the news around the Holocaust, the response around the Holocaust, and in doing so, wrestling with some very deep questions about what kind of a country we are, have been, and want to be. Ken, back to you. When did the public here in in the uh, States really come to understand what was happening to Jewish people under Nazi rule? You know, it's a hard thing to say. There's, you know, an overwhelming majority that don't want to help the Jews, even though they're very sympathetic to what may have taken place, say, in November of 38 in Kristallnacht, when the Nazis sort of changed from just sort of saying, we want to drive you out to also, you know, we're we're going to really burn your synagogues and trash your businesses and make your life even more miserable than we already have. Americans are just repelled by this. Even anti-Semites are kind of repelled by the by that. But do we want the United States to do anything about it? No, we don't. And so I think even at the very end of the war, the statistic that I think hurts Sarah as much as anything, and me as well, is that when the footage came in, when the war was over, when it was won, when the concentration camps had been liberated, when the footage came out, the ghastly footage of the liberation of the concentration camps, and we could see firsthand in every single theater in America played the newsreel, everybody who was sentient could see what had happened and saw what was happening in the newspapers or the news magazines or or other things, and particularly in the newsreels. Only 5% of Americans wanted to let in what was still a, a, just a huge uh, humanitarian refugee crisis in Europe. Only 5% wanted to do that. So it's really, as Sarah is saying, you, you, you don't want to swing between binary poles. Nothing is binary. And that's all we want to do in our media culture. So, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. No, we're not because of that took place. We are a nation of immigrants, obviously. And many of us subscribe to the humanitarian values that come along with the idea that people different initially from yourself are in fact as human as you are. But, you know, at that time there was eugenics, which was saying, no, there's a hierarchy of races. There's a hierarchy of ethnicities. And that's going to be one of the contributing factors to our inability to rescue is just the lack of political will. So we've got lots of operating things. And at the same time that Americans are overwhelmingly feeling this and not wanting that, there are lots of Americans who are risking their lives to save other people's lives, people they don't know, performing heroic acts, which our film also details. Right. Let, let me ask you this, though. I, I know that you started this project a good number of years ago. Uh, so certainly it, it, 
taken at face value, it's a it's a story about our history. But you can also view it in in light of uh, contemporary happenings in this country and in many parts of, uh, for example, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, too, I suppose. Now, you can view it as a metaphor for what's happening now. Would you agree? Well, we don't do that. We tell stories, and we know, though, that every story we've ever told rhymes in the present, as Mark Twain would say. There's always going to be echoes, because human nature doesn't change. And our job as filmmakers is to attend to our story, but we are not unmindful of the fact that when we finish it, we lift up and see the way in which it resonates with today. The question with this film is that as we were working on it, even though we were not pointing arrows and saying, oh, isn't this like today? It was becoming, for a film started in 2015, a very different world and a very different America. It was just getting uncomfortably so. So we advanced the, the, the production schedule to come out this year rather than next year, which would have been much more comfortable for us. We wanted to join a question because... As Deborah Lipstadt says in our film, scholar and historian, she said, the time to stop a genocide is before it happens, to which we would add the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. And what we see in these rhymes are that institutions that we thought were unassailable are assailable, the free and fair elections, the peaceful transfer of power, the independence of the judiciary, the independence of the press, the, the responsibility not to promulgate lies. All of that has been uh, undercut, and those are part of the playbook of authoritarianism, which we see just as we saw in the period of the 20s and 30s in our film, and 40s, obviously, um, is growing again. And it might be Viktor Orban in Hungary, or it might be what Putin is doing in Ukraine, or it might be domestic things here that suggest an authoritarian bent. We just want to bring this story, just the story, not the argument, not an advocacy of a particular position, but the story into a conversation. Because as the writer Richard Powers said, the best arguments in the world won't change anybody's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. And then you don't know. Once it's done and the film is done and it's out, it's not ours, it's yours. Sarah, to further that, to make this and to speed it up and get it out there, I mean, when we are facing these these currents of white nationalism or, or authoritarianism, do people learn from history enough? Because it does seem like it tends to repeat itself. So let me just address the do we learn enough from history? I think one of the reasons we do what we do is because, as Ken always says, we're deeply interested in our complicated and sometimes dark and sometimes very light past. And I think now that we are experiencing for the first time in my life, a deeply, for me, upsetting conversation about what we should be learning and what we teach our students and how we think about our history. Um, I think it's very important to try and learn from the past. Yes, are there often echoes? Nothing's ever exactly the same. We, I mean, right, part of the human ex experiment is to get up and try to make your world a better day tomorrow. So I think we, 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 we look to the future optimistically. We look to our past to help us figure out what's happening in the present. And the more, to my mind, thoughtfully critical we can be of the past to understand not just the dynamics of what's happening right now in front of us, but how we might change the course moving forward is the reason we do what we do. Ken, Sarah, thank you very much, both of you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Interesting folks. Yeah.
That's in depth for today. We will be back tomorrow.